Hello, and welcome to the She Can Fix It podcast. My name is Dr. Alana Munger, and I'm a second year resident at Yale. There are many folks who attempt to deter women from the field of orthopedic surgery by stating that you will not have a personal life if you become a surgeon, or you will never be able to have a family as a woman in orthopedics. That is simply not true. There are many phenomenal female orthopedic surgeons who are also amazing mothers. Dr. Erin Kravis is one of these women. Dr. Kravis is a fourth year resident here at Yale who is a new mother to a beautiful baby girl. Dr. Kravis and I spoke about the unique challenges women face when deciding to have a family while being a full-time surgeon. I hope this episode provides some truth and hope to those surgeons and surgeons in training who wish to start families. Here is my conversation with Dr. Aaron Kravis. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here, Dr. Aaron Kravis. So you are a resident with me here at Yale, but you are a fourth year and I'm a second year. And so we are, you are my first resident actually that I've interviewed. That is extremely exciting. We've got a handful of other women at our program for you to choose from. I know, so the, lots of opportunities. Um, but let's get started with having you describe your background, where you grew up, where you went to med school, all that jazz. Yeah, definitely. So um, I grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, um, and my dad was an engineer, so I did a lot of projects growing up. Um, we have a cabin a little further north of Anchorage where I spent my summers, so we did a lot of building up there, um, always wanted to do something kind of hands-on, and I can't really remember when I got into medicine, but it was pretty early on. Um, like I knew through high school I wanted to do something in the medical field, um, and got kind of involved in global health as an undergrad. Hmm. Um, so I did a couple study abroad projects, um, one in South Africa and one in Ghana, and so those both got me really interested in global health in general. Um, and. Uh, and kind of fueled that desire to go to medical school. Um, I ended up going to University of Washington in Seattle, which was a, an amazing experience. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically the med school for the entire Northwest. Wow. So you have the opportunity to go to all these rural clinical sites. Um, so I was able to do some rotations back in Alaska, mm-hmm. Wyoming, uh, Montana. Um, and so you spend a lot of time doing rural medicine and, and you know, kind of primary care focused um, mm-hmm. rotations. and. That was, it was just an amazing experience, um, not to mention, you know, being able to spend some time back in my home state. Nice. So then when were you thinking about orthopedics? I think it was probably the second year of med school. Um, I really started to fixate on that. Um, I did a summer in Cambodia between the first and second year, and um, I was originally interested in pediatrics. It was a pediatric orthopedic hospital. So I kind of went for the pediatric aspect of that and then became really interested in the orthopedics. Mm. Um, And uh, I think I just, it kind of clicked. I liked that hands-on aspect of ortho. Um, I liked being able to use all the tools that I was kind of accustomed (laughs) to using growing up. And then um, the ability to to apply that to global health, you know, later on in my career was, um, was, you know, another contributing factor. So I think uh, like second year and third year. Um, or when I really started focusing on ortho and then started doing my sub-eyes and that kind of... That whole lovely process that we currently have with all the sub-eyes and things. And then now you're here at Yale. And then 
in your time here, you have decided to pursue a hand fellowship. So can you talk us through why hand out of all the eight different subspecialties that we have in ortho, why hand? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the great things about hand is that you get to spend a little bit of time um, covering so many of those different specialties. You know, you have the opportunity to do trauma, you see some oncologic cases, um, you can do some degenerative cases and even some arthroplasty. You know, we have um, MCP and even wrist arthroplasties now. Um, and then if, you, if you're interested, you also can delve further into the upper extremities. You can do arthroscopy, um, you can do um, degenerative cases, tendon transfers, microvascular. I think the diversity of the pathology and the cases is just so wide. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's, that's probably the biggest reason um, I was interested in hand. And, you know, also just as somebody who's kind of um, artistic, I really liked being able to work in that small field. Right. Those meticulous cases. Nice. Oh. And I think for you, one of, you gave just such an amazing grand rounds a few months ago about uh, pregnancy in residency um, and the risks that many pregnant residents and many pregnant attendings face. And I think that for our listeners, I think something to remember is that orthopedic surgery, it's a field that is different than under other fields because of the fact that we have unique exposures. You know, we have the radiation in the operating room, we have bone cement, we have these things that are unique to our field that actually can potentially pose risks to those who are pregnant, to those who are breastfeeding. And so I was hoping you can talk a little bit about your Grand Rounds presentations and the things that you learned when you were doing all this research. Yeah, so I actually hadn't done much research uh, in my own time before my pregnancy, um, which in hindsight, I, I kind of wish I had because it, it probably would have changed the way that I um, that I uh, spent time in, in the OR. Um, right. You know. I think um, surgeons in general, doctors in general, face increased risks um, during pregnancy just by nature of the long hours that we work. Um, We spend so much time on our feet. But you're right, orthopedics does have some kind of unique risks. And the big ones that you mentioned are radiation and bone cement. Those are the two that I get the most questions about. So I gave a Grand Rounds talk back in October, and I kind of reviewed some of the risks that the operating room poses in general, Mm -hmm. but particularly the orthopedic operating room, um, and kind of reviewed the literature behind those, um, as well as um, some of the risk reduction measures that we can take to help protect ourselves. Right. Um, And uh, at the end of each of those um, uh, topics, you know, I, I kind of put my own personal perspective um, and assigned it a risk level. So right. from my own review of the literature, I um, kind of assigned it a, um, a value in terms of whether I thought that this truly posed a low, a moderate, or a high risk um, to the pregnant surgeon. Mm-hmm. So I can talk a little bit about um, each yes, of those. Yes, please. First of all, I think we need to congratulate you on having your child because she's so Thank cute you. and so adorable. Thank you. And she's yep. so much more expressive than she was like a month ago. Oh my, oh my gosh. Yeah. She's like a different person every day. I know. She actually, she just turned four months yesterday. Oh. Um, so yeah, I've just been so fortunate, you know, to be at a program where we've had a few attendings recently that have had children. And right. so, you know, kind of having their support and um, just being able to, you know, have someone to go to for advice. I mm-hmm. think it's, you know, women in orthopedics is such a small field. And then within that, um, you know, women who have had children um, right. while operating and particularly as residents, it's that uh, group of people is relatively small. And so mm-hmm. 
um, it's it's just so nice to be able to have other people to talk to. Right. Um, yeah. So how about we talk about um, some of the things that you were able to find when you were doing your research for ground rounds? Sure. Yeah. So um, some of these are um, specific to the orthopedic operating room. Some of them um, are just kind of general risks that any surgeon or anesthesiologist would be faced with. Mm -hmm. Um, The first one that I wanted to talk about was bloodborne pathogens. Right. So, um, you know, we're all exposed to uh, bloodborne pathogens in the OR. And we actually know that orthopedic surgeons are at a higher risk of percutaneous exposure to pathogens than other surgical specialties. So there have been a few studies um, looking at blood splatter exposure. And um, actually, orthopedic surgeons can be exposed to blood splatter uh, up to 50% of their cases. Um, And that largely applies to total joints cases and oncology cases. Um, But our rates of percutaneous exposure during those cases um, can be in the two to 15% range. So Mm -hmm. it's actually relatively high. Um, I think the bloodborne pathogens that most people um, will talk about when it relates to fetal transmission are hepatitis and HIV. Mm -hmm. So hepatitis B, thankfully most of us are vaccinated Mm -hmm. against, but um, if you were exposed to hepatitis B in the OR and for whatever reason were not vaccinated, the risk of uh, transmission to you as a mother from a single exposure is up to 30%. Wow. And the vertical transmission to your fetus can be as high as 90%. Mm-hmm. Um, that risk actually increases throughout your pregnancy. Right. Um, and so it generally is about 10% in the first trimester and up to mm-hmm. 90% in the third trimester uh, and can also be vertically transmitted during delivery. Mm-hmm. So thankfully with hepatitis B, there's um, great prophylaxis out there. And um, if you take the vaccine and immunoglobulin, uh, mm-hmm. immunoglobin, <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, if you are exposed, then that'll interrupt transmission by about eighty five percent. Nice. Um, so we have great treatment options out there. Mm-hmm. HIV is a little bit different um, because the risk of uh, acquisition of HIV with a single exposure is much lower. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually about 03 percent with a percutaneous exposure, right. and that's someone with a high viral load. Um, so the risk is relatively low. But if you are exposed to HIV, um, the vertical transmission is a, is a much bigger issue. Mm. Um, you, can, you can transmit uh, HIV to a fetus at any point during pregnancy, during delivery, and actually also via breast milk. Wow. Um, and so the World Health Organization recommends against breastfeeding mm-hmm. um, for any woman who either has an unknown infection status uh, or a known HIV exposure. Mm-hmm. Um, there is antiretroviral therapy out there, and the best one is AZT. Mm-hmm. Um, that can reduce your risk of fetal infection by about 70%, but unfortunately it's also associated with these mutagenic effects. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, uh, the medication is also pretty dangerous. Right. So when we look at bloodborne pathogens as a whole, you know, I gave this a relative risk to the pregnant surgeon of high. You know, the right. risk of acquisition is pretty low, mm-hmm. but if you were to acquire something like HIV, um, we just don't have great medications out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it also prevents you from being able to breastfeed in the future. Uh, and so um, I think that's one of the, the biggest risks that we face and that we need to help mitigate. Right. Um, and so, in some of my research, you know, I found that the best ways to mitigate your exposure to bloodborne pathogens is double gloving. Mm. So double gloving in the OR will reduce your risk of a needle stick by about 72%. Wow. Um, and uh, just one little caveat for orthopedics, you know, we use bone cement fairly frequently. 
Um, and uncured bone cement can actually cause breakdown of your glove. That was just so shocking to me when you had said yeah. that. Because, I mean, I double glove all the time. And I thought, like, oh, we're double gloving. I'm reducing my wrist. I'm okay. I am protecting myself. But, you know, because whenever we make, like, antibiotic beads or whatever and we're handling the cement itself, it's it was really shocking to me. And it honestly changed the way that I do things in the OR and that whenever I'm handling bone cement, I make sure that I change my gloves after just yeah, because definitely. it just degrades it. Yeah, I mean, we should we should be double gloving all the time, but uh, particularly when you're handling bone cement. Um, there were a number of studies back in 2003, mostly based out of Norway, that looked at a variety of different types of surgical gloves. Mm -hmm. And they used liquid chromatography um, on the other side of the glove after it was exposed to uh, MMA. And they found that breakdown of gloves um, can occur at about a minute and a half at a, wow. with a single glove versus nine minutes for double gloves. Um, it's, a, it's a longer time with latex-free orthopedic gloves, which mm -hmm. is what most of us use. Um, it's about three minutes for a single glove and 13 minutes for double gloves right. um, with exposure, at which point, you know, the cement is usually cured. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I was, I was surprised to find that literature as well. And so um, now when I'm handling bone cement, even though I'm no longer pregnant, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I absolutely double glove. I make sure I have ortho gloves on right. uh, or change my gloves mm -hmm. um, after handling the cement. Yeah. Um, no, because it was, what's interesting is that when I remember with your presentation, I had always thought, all right, radiation, bone cement, those are the only two things I really need to be worrying about when I'm thinking about pregnancy and all these sorts of things. And yeah. I had completely forgotten about the transmission of hep C, hep B, or HIV. And it was something that was just a really, um, it was kind of like a stunning moment for me because I'm like, wow, I had completely not even thought about that right yeah so, that was awesome you know I think many of us have been stuck at some point in time and um, during my third trimester I had some blood splatter um, that actually kind of went over my loops and oh, into my no. eye and you know up until my pregnancy I I had never requested a needle stick panel right. um, I think I was I think I was kind of um, careless for not doing that mm -hmm. previously but um, you know it was just like a whole it was a whole nother um, level of um, fear. Yeah, when when it was That's during my pregnancy, because yeah. it's, it's not just you anymore. No. Um, so I think um, I think that was uh, interesting to read mm -hmm. about the uh, double gloving, and I'm yeah. you know much more uh, cognizant of it now. Right. Um, the next thing I looked at, which I'll just touch on very briefly, mm -hmm. um, was anesthetic gases. You know, I mm. think I think back in the 60s, there were some studies um, that suggested that exposure to anesthesia posed some fetal risk. Right. Um, that mostly was in reference to nitrous oxide mm -hmm. um, and some of the halogenated gases like sleevofluorine and isoflurane. Um, because they have some inhibitory effect on dividing cells. And so, right. especially in the first trimester, there was this risk of chromosomal abnormalities. Um, but basically, since that time, there have been a number of studies that um, look at wasted missions, which are essentially the amount of anesthetic gas that are able to leave the anesthetic circuit mm -hmm. um, in the OR. And they found that a lot of those waste emissions are essentially undetectable in a lot of ORs. Okay. Um, and... Anesthesiologists and surgeons who are exposed to those waste levels have have not shown any increased risks of infertility or abortions or uh, spontaneous abnormalities. So, okay. um, the conclusion, um, you know, after 
much study was that the waste levels of gas in the mm-hmm. OR do not pose a significant risk. Good. Um, and there really aren't any particular um, recommendations mm-hmm. for pregnant women. Right. So I'll touch a little bit on radiation um, because that's one that many people are curious about. Um, and, you know, we're exposed to radiation every day in our Literally. lives. Yeah. yeah. You know, most people are exposed to some level of background radiation, mm-hmm. which is usually from cosmic rays or soil isotopes or even some of the things we eat. You know, mm-hmm. bananas have um, potassium, which um, emits a isotope. Um, right. And so background levels of natural radiation are about 2.7 millisieverts a year. Mm-hmm. And um, just for reference, the, the sievert um, is a unit of measurement that essentially denotes how damaging um, an absorbed dose of radiation is on mm-hmm. the tissue um, to which it's exposed. So just for reference, um, the recommended uh, annual radiation dose that we're exposed to mm-hmm. um, on top of that background level is about one millisievert, which right. is essentially 750 fluoro shots without wearing protection. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was able to glean from some of the literature I viewed is that, um, you know, much of the information we have about the effects of radiation on pregnant women, um, unfortunately comes from World War II when there were the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, Mm. um, Japan. And so there were several thousand pregnant women who were exposed to these extremely high levels of radiation. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, unfortunately they suffered a whole host of, um, fetal abnormalities and spontaneous abortions. Right. Um, so we don't have great information about how much radiation a fetus needs to be exposed to. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do know that um, wearing lead is the best protection you can have. Right. So maternal tissues, um, your own body, will attenuate about 70% of the radiation that you're exposed to mm-hmm. in the OR before it reaches the fetus. Right. On top of that, regular lead will block another 96% of radiation. Mm -hmm. And if you wear the maternal lead, which is like a double weight lead, Mm -hmm. that's about half a millimeter thick, um, that attenuates about 99%. Wow. So only a relative gain on top of standard lead. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you extrapolate that, then that essentially means that um, for any fluoro shot that a woman is exposed to, let's say you're standing directly next to a large C-arm, um, wearing standard lead, the amount of radiation that reaches the fetus is 0.0006 millisieverts. Mm-hmm. So it's an infinitesimally small amount of radiation. Right. Um, it's actually not detected on dosimeters, but mm-hmm. that's extrapolating um, the amount of attenuation you get from the mother's body, the lead that you're wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the end of the day, um, I think radiation actually poses a lower risk than we traditionally thought that it did. Right. Um, if you're just taking standard precautions. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there are things you can do to limit your risk even more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the kind of the four uh, cardinal um, rules of radiation protection are shielding yourself, mm-hmm. so wearing lead, um, distance mm-hmm. from the C-arm. So for every half meter that you are away from the C-arm, it reduces your risk about fourfold. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the exposure time and contamination about the room. Right. Um, one thing that I found kind of interesting um, in a review of the literature was that um, if you are doing freehand distal interlocks on a femoral or a tibial nail, that actually uses double the radiation 
uh, as if you're using a targeting guide. Because you're on Mag 1 or...? I think it's it's probably a combination of the magnification and then just the number of shots that you have to take in order right. to make sure that you're lined up. Yeah. Um, and so if you have the opportunity to use a targeting guide, mm-hmm. um, you know, I absolutely will from now on. Right. Um, because that's just one more, uh, one more means by which you can reduce your own exposure. Mm-hmm. Nice. Very cool. You know, we always focused on radiation. I think we always thought about the pregnancy risks and especially with how radiation is used in orthopedic surgery so much more than any like general surgery vascular surgery well vascular surgery a little bit but it's just in terms of i think orthopedic surgery utilizes and depends on radiation radiology and radiation and those sorts of things so much more so it was really interesting to learn that as long as you are safe with mm-hmm. what you're doing you're wearing the lead you're making sure that you're not having the beam shoot up, having it shoot down toward the ground and those sorts of things. Right, and exactly. safely how you're using it, you can really help to mitigate the risk. Right, yeah. And I think one area to be um, especially cognizant is actually during spine surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so during spine surgery, as you can imagine, um, that is the uh, time in which you're going to be closest to the beam. So if you're standing right next to the patient putting in pedicle screws mm-hmm. and the CRM is shooting right next to you, right. Um, you just don't have the ability to maximize your distance from the beam. Mm-hmm. There was a really excellent study in JBJS in 2012 um, that looked at a number of different um, orthopedic procedures mm-hmm. and the amount of radiation exposure during those. Right. And they basically found that if you wanted to um, limit your radiation exposure throughout the course of your pregnancy... Um, and they picked kind of an arbitrary limit of one gray mm-hmm. um, that they recommended limiting your number of spine procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, they meant single level fusions with four pedicle screws to only 23 over the course of your pregnancy. Wow. So you can imagine if you have a background in spine surgery, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's actually quite a low number. Right. And I think uh, moving on to toward the bone smith, this is also something that was rather surprising to me with regards to the things that you were able to find in the actual literature because it was such a, it was a learning point of that sometimes what people say is actually different than what the literature actually shows. And just, and so I was hoping you can talk about what you were able to find when you had done your research about the risks of bone cement in pregnancy. Yeah, so... Um... You know, I, I'm sure we've all heard, you know, as a scrub tech is about to mix the bone cement, they'll ask, you know, is anybody in the room pregnant? Um, mm-hmm. And if so, you know, do you want to step out? Or they'll they'll encourage you to step out. Right. Um, so I looked a little bit more into this. Uh, actually, after I had my daughter, um, I elected to step out mm-hmm. when I was on my joints rotation during my right. second trimester. Um, and in hindsight, I don't know that I would in the future. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of that literature is based on a couple studies back in the 70s mm-hmm. in which they exposed um, mice and rats to these extremely high levels of MMA vapor. Um, and so they, uh, one of these studies used 27,000 parts per million mm-hmm. of PMMA vapor and exposed rats to this throughout the course of their pregnancy at varying points. Right. And they found that... Um, that these doses were fetotoxic or caused skeletal malformations at levels above a thousand parts per million. Hmm. Now, for reference, um, the maximum amount of MMA vapor that we're exposed to in orthopedic OR tops out at about a hundred. Wow. So that is ten times less um, than what these studies showed. And um, 
one of these in, in 1979 uh, actually exposed rats to 27,000 parts per million of vapor, which is 270 times the amount that you're going to even potentially be exposed to an orthopedic OR. Right. Um, and that's with hand mixing, no fume hoods, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and that uh, that amount of vapor is um, calculated usually during the cementing of an acetabulum or mm-hmm. during a total hip where you're using very large quantities of cement. So, you know, there have been a number of studies since the 70s uh, that essentially refuted those original two articles. Um, there have been a couple uh, mice and rat studies that tried to replicate that and found that there were uh, no fetal changes right. uh, in exposures up to 2,000 parts per million, which again is over 20 times mm-hmm. the amount you would ever see in an operating room. Right. Um, and all of the uh, studies on uh, surgeons in the operating room um, found that uh, at the breathing level of the surgeon, many times that MMA is either not detectable um, with gas chromatography or uh, exceedingly low. Mm-hmm. And so we know that the use of a, a vacuum mixer can reduce the amount of vapor in the room by about four times. Wow. Um, and the use of a hood nearly eliminates uh, that amount of vapor. Right. Um, so, Which I had never even realized. I always yeah. thought that the hoods were just, you know, uh, reducing the risk of infection and da 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 I had no idea that it actually helped to eliminate the amount of um, MMA cement that we would be smelling exposed, exposed to. to. Yeah. And also I would imagine the same would be for Bowie and the electrocautery that we use and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I would think so. Um, you know, I didn't look into that specifically, but um, I do know there was a study in uh, 1993 that used a, a hood and then um, gas chromatography on the other side of the hood. Right. And they found that um, they were unable to detect any vapor um, and that's with a setting of 0.05 parts per million um, mm. behind the hood. So right. um, that that can essentially eliminate um, your risk of exposure to the vapor. Right. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting was um, they also detected um, when that smell mm-hmm. began to dissipate. And you can detect the smell of MMA at 0.2 parts per million, mm. which is an extremely low level. I mean, again, for reference, those rat studies back in the 70s that originally... Um, kind of spurred the concern about PMMA, mm-hmm. um, we're looking at vapors of 27,000 parts per million. Right. So you're able to detect that smell at a very, very, very low level mm-hmm. um, that would essentially pose little to no risk right. um, to you or your fetus. Yeah. No, it was yeah. such it was such a great like overall presentation. And I think it was, honestly, I think it was great that we were able to actually give a grand rounds about the risks and thoughts that we have as, you know, when we're thinking about pregnancy, thinking about lactation, thinking about what risks we have at our jobs yeah, and during this whole thing. And I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, she's four months old now. She's absolutely adorable. And what life has been like transitioning back after the pregnancy? Yeah. You know, everything is, um, it's, it's hard to prepare for having a kid until you have a kid. Um, but, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things that I've grappled with, and I'm sure many women in my position have, are just um, that mom guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, we hear about mom guilt. Um, right. And, you know, it's 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 really hard. You know, you mm-hmm. want to be... The people who choose to go into medicine and who mm-hmm. choose to go into orthopedic surgery, especially, are always very... Um, driven, um, resilient people. And, you know, we want to be the best that we can be. We want to be the best surgeons we can be 
And so when you have a kid, you want to be the best mom you can be. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's just really challenging to, um, you know, navigate that and find a way to, um, you know, tr- you want to you want to spend the most time you can with your child, but you also have a job to do. Right. Um, so I, I think that that one of the biggest things I've learned is just to like cut myself some slack every mm-hmm. now and then. Right. You know, um, I've been fortunate to breastfeed my mm-hmm. daughter for the last four months. Right. Um, but it's a lot more work than I expected it to be. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, I have to step out of the OR every three hours or so to pump um, and it's a, it's an entire process, you know, yes. you have to store your milk in the fridge. You have to go to the fridge and assemble the pump. You mm-hmm. have to pump, you have to, you know, transfer it to a storage container, get it right. back in the fridge and then you're running back to the OR. And so, you know, I've been really lucky to have attendings that, you know, are, are willing to let me step away. Right. Um, and they're supportive of that. And... Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, sometimes it means that I'm missing prepping and draping the next patient. Right. Um, and you know, there's, there's so much um, like stress involved with that, mm-hmm. um, and I don't want to miss, right? You know, any aspect of these cases either. And so right. um, it's been it's been really interesting to navigate that. Yeah. Um, you know, we we know about all the benefits of breastfeeding, and so yes, you know, we're we're like very much. Uh, that's what I'm looking for. You know, we we really want to be able to provide that right um, for for our um, babies, but uh, it is hard, Yeah, you know? And it's hard because they're probably, like, as an institution, we probably don't do a good enough job of, like, actually having areas where you can lactate. And it's just, like, it's a lot of... I think the area of surgery itself, there's so many barriers to having a child and lactating after pregnancy. Not only just actual physical barriers in terms of the logistics of pregnancy, the logistics of lactation, but also the stigma of it. And it's amazing how, I I think it's hilarious how it's 2020 and we're still like women, you know, you are an inferior surgeon if you decide to have a family. And you're just like, no, no. (laughs) You know, it's, it's that thought where you're just like, we're able to do everything that our male colleagues can do. Right. And in addition, we can do this. Right. You know? And I think yeah. that it was such a, um, and I think you and I have talked about that article that was recently in the New York Times about, um, it was called When the Surgeon is a Mom. Um, and it's a phenomenal, phenomenal article for our listeners who yeah. haven't seen it. It's by Emma Goldberg. And it basically talks about the... Uh, barriers and the stresses that women face to, ha- you know, to have a child. And especially because we're working 80 hours a week, we're right, sleep deprived yeah. and all these sorts of things. Right. I was wondering and what your thoughts were on that article. It was, I found that article just so refreshing, you know, for those of us who are in that position, because it's not something we talk about a lot. Right. Um, you know, I really identified there was a, there was a little piece in there you know, she talked about the, uh, the mother who was sitting in her car and reflecting and felt like, she was failing as a surgeon. She was failing as a mom, um, you know, feeling guilt about dropping her child off at daycare and yes. not being there as a mom 24-7, but then also feeling guilty about, you know, not not being able to spend, you know, additional hours at work on top of the 80 hours of work we're already working as residents. And right. So, um, you know, I, I, I've definitely identified with that 
you know, mm-hmm. level of guilt. Um, I, my daughter was in daycare since she was nine weeks old. And, right. you know, it's a terrible feeling right. to send your kid to be cared for by strangers. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, you, you kind of make peace with it. And mm-hmm. um, and she's very happy there now. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I think that um, we just have to kind of cut ourselves some slack right. every now and then and realize that, you know, you'll just you got to be the best surgeon you can be and the best Mm -hmm. mom that you can be. And to understand that, you know, to be the best mom, you can also be a role model. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad that one day when she grows up, she'll be able to see that her mom is, you know, a hardworking surgeon and was still able to love her and provide for her. And no, um, that's so true. Like that's how it was with my parents. My parents were Honestly, they're like the people who I look to the most. They were absolute role models and they were both working professionals. And my mom was an absolute, like phenomenal attorney and literally did groundbreaking stuff in the state of Hawaii. And it was, she worked, but she was also always there for me. And I remember, you know, we would go to the zoo and we would have epic Easter egg hunts and she would let us like paint her toenails and all these weird, weird, weird colors. And it's just like, you have those memories where she was there she was an amazing mom, and yet she was also someone who was an absolute badass in her field. And it yeah. was such an inspiration and still is, you know? And it's just, it's, I think for us, I think at least for me, what's great to know is that those role models of that balance is not only in our own field, but I think also in other fields as well. But yeah. it's just, it's so brutal where yeah. you're just like, I can't, even the struggle of just like, I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. I'm also trying to do this. And all the balls that you're juggling is just like, oh, my word. But you're right. You just yeah. got to cut yourself some slack sometimes. Yeah. You just got to, you know, prioritize the best you can. And, um, you know, I think like the thing that I've kind of come to terms with, especially when you're working really long days. Right. And, you know, maybe I'm only seeing my daughter for like 15, 20 minutes before it's her bedtime. Yeah. And I've just learned to realize, you know, I just need to make the most of those 15, 20 minutes because mm-hmm. when I'm not there... Um, it's hurting me more than it's hurting her. Mm-hmm. And what she's going to remember is the time that we are spending together. Right. So I just have to make the most of the time that I'm seeing her. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I'm not with her, yeah. do my best to be the best surgeon I can be. Yeah, exactly. You're slaying it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I know, I know. So I do want to talk about um, the things outside of medicine. And you are a fourth year resident here. You're going on to your fellowship interviews. Yeah. And as a career, Crazy. I know, just it's almost like two, like a year and a half, a year and a half, and you're going to be off doing your so thing. So wild. Oh I know. Gosh. But I was wondering, what are your future goals slash projects you're thinking of doing while you're here at Yale? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the biggest thing, you know, I play right now is, um, fellowship interviews, which right. just started. Um, and, um, they're, you know, the next couple months are pretty packed with that. Mm-hmm. Um, which yay. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, my husband and daughter are actually coming with me for a number of them. Aww. So that'll be, it'll be a blast to be able to kind of travel around. Right. And, um, right. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to being able to scope out some of these places. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, just the rest of the time I'm here, I really want to take advantage of, of, you know, the opportunity to spend as much time in the OR as I can. And, um, you know, I, I also love trauma, um, in addition to hand. And I think that, you know, long-term my husband and I have been talking about going back up to Alaska. Right. Um, and so we have, 
we have the ability to um, see some really interesting trauma cases here at Yale. Yes. Um, I'm doing that next summer um, mm-hmm. as trauma chief, so I just want to be able to, you know, crank out as many of those cases as I can because, right. um, you know, I think the reality of a practice in a place like Alaska is that you have to be pretty flexible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, that's probably going to mean some trauma calls, some hip right. fracture call, right. um, in addition to a full-time hand practice. So yes. I just want to be able to be as prepared for that as it can be. Awesome. Well, Erin, I know that you have many things to do, especially with your daughter and your husband and all these things. So I was going to go transition into the final five questions that I have for you, Okay. which are the same questions that I ask of every guest here on the She Can Fix a Podcast. So uh, my first Question for you is, what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? Favorite procedure? Um, it's it's kind of gross, but actually a good IND. No. Yeah, I no. just love a good IND. Oh, my There word. is just something so gratifying. Ugh. You know, in hand, I don't know if you've ever seen um, like a phenar abscess, but you just get into that big pocket of pus and you wash it out, and it is just so gratifying. Oh, my word. I love it. Are you, like, are you the one of those folks that likes, like, the doctor pimple? Oh, God, no. Things? Oh, so yeah. gross. That literally, that that, is, no. these are equivalent things, just for the record. <laughs> All right, I, I, support, I support you in everything that you do. So if you like abscesses, I, I, power, I will send them your way. Oh, my word. That's hilarious. All right, next question. What are your favorite go-to topics for Grand Rounds presentations? Go-to topics. Well, I've only ever given two Grand Rounds, and we just talked about one of them. Um, But uh, I did another talk on frostbite injuries. That was so cool. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it's not something we see frequently here in Connecticut, but um, it shows up every once in a while in Alaska, for sure. And um, I'm sure, you know, throughout some of the Midwest and Northeast. But... um, I did a kind of a presentation on um, the pathogenesis of frostbite injuries mm-hmm. and then kind of the current treatment protocols, right. um, which are really fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I'll be well prepared if we go back up there. I know. Yeah. It, was, it was honestly like something where like I grew up in Hawaii, so I had never seen frostbite. And I remember when I was transitioning and moving to the East, I was actually really worried that there would be many things that I wouldn't understand. Yeah. Like people talking about winter activities and winter things. And I would be like, I would literally just not understand them because I wouldn't have the context. How's that going? It's, it's, it it is very much present. Um, (laughs) like the skiing and the snowboarding, like someone said, because I had never done skiing or snowboarding and they're like, oh yeah. So then I went and they're like, oh, snowboarding, you should try that first rather than skiing because snowboarding is just like... Like surfing, that's a false statement. Oh, lies, lies, absolutely. Snowboarding false is hard. Statement. It's so difficult, and it was. It would literally. It just did not end well. The falling is easier. The, the fall. Oh uh, yeah, the, the actual, actual boarding is hard. Part is difficult. So yeah, this whole winter business is. I'm still getting used to it. Um, next question: What is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? Favorite memory. You know, I think the I think the best memories are, um, you know, the the patients that we've treated um, right. that have had successful outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a, a teenager that came in with a really unusual um, infection after he was hit with a lacrosse stick, and we ended up, you know, requiring these serial debridements of his arm. And I actually just randomly saw him back in one of our sports clinics mm. for a totally unrelated issue. Oh, wow. um, but, you know, it's now been seven months since his injury, and mm-hmm. he just looks 
phenomenal and it was so much fun to see him and of course he's in that age where he's growing so much so you know I think he was like (laughs) six inches taller the last time I saw him and it was it was just so much fun to see him it's it's one of those um you know it's just one of those times where you you know you look back and you you you're happy to be a doctor right you know yeah, like those moments when you actually remember, you're like, this is actually why I went this into is why medicine. This. Yeah. You know, which is hard because I think in residency, we have so many moments where you're, you're working and you're just, you're just trying yeah. to get all these tasks done. And you finally, you have those moments of just a just fresh breath of life where you're just like, this is why Yeah, I'm you see here. a person like at their worst, at, right. you know, at the lowest point and, uh, and then you see them back again and, right. and, and they're yeah, healthy just... and happy and walking around and right. playing sports again and getting right. other injuries. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. That's awesome. What, so we've talked a lot about your life in the operating room and in the hospital. So I was wondering what are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside the hospital? Well, I love to run. Um, I ran in college and I ran in med school. Um, and getting back into it, it's been a little bit more challenging after having my daughter. But um, I would say it's up there. My husband and I love to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we like to do a lot of backpacking trips right. before my daughter was born. And um, we actually just got back last week. We took her to um, kind of the southern coast of France and Ooh. Monaco. Oh, my and word. So it was her first international yeah. trip. But um yeah, it was. It's just been a lot of fun, um, you know. And she's thankfully a good little traveler. So oh, good. Hopefully, many trips to come. Oh, fun! And then my last question for you is: What advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Oh boy! I know it's a big one. So much, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I think just maintaining a positive energy will get you through so much in life and you know right. we, we have a hard job like our truth our, yeah, yeah yeah um getting to the point of getting into an orthopedic residency and then getting through an orthopedic residency it's challenging right. you know um so i think if you can maintain a positive attitude through that mm-hmm. um that'll get you far right um you know coffee yeah coffee's good <laughs> not a fan of the uh of the monster drinks but oh my god I coffee can't. coffee I can't. yeah um you know, and, and find, find a good role model. Yeah. Find one or two good role models that can be your go-to people mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and kind of form a support system for yourself. Right. That'll get you a long way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, you did so amazing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Erin Kravitz. Please subscribe to the She Can Fix It podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find us on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram at shecanfixitpod. I would like to take a moment to thank those who helped to make this podcast possible. A sincere thank you to Dr. Mary O'Connor for her mentorship in creating this podcast. Thank you to the amazing attendings here at Yale. Dr. Carrie Swaggart, Dr. Adrian Sochi, Dr. Liz Gardner, and Dr. Andy Halim, and now Dr. Lisa Latanza for being exemplary role models for us. And finally, many, many, many thanks to my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vennie Kirk, without whom this podcast could not be possible. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode with Dr. Aaron Kravitz, And we hope to bring you more great interviews on the She Can Fix It podcast.